Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. And I have a special offer for Americano listeners. If you want to subscribe to the Spectator's US edition, which is brilliant, by the way, I edit it, you can go to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and take advantage of our special Americano offer. If you insert the code Americano in capital letters like Donald Trump on Twitter, you will get 5% off. Please do so. I'm joined today by Matt McDonald, who is Spectator USA's managing editor, and he's based in Brooklyn. So I'm going to be asking him about what the coronavirus is doing to New York. Matt, you wrote rather a sad piece, given your normal cheery tone, about what it's like being in Brooklyn at the moment. And I can't actually hear a siren at the moment, but you said the sirens are becoming ever more frequent. I can hear one at a distance, yeah. I mean, I suppose it's one of those things where it's hard to know whether you're just noticing them more because you listen out for them more, as in because we're being, everyone in New York is being told, you know, we're the epicentre of the coronavirus in, in North America. Maybe there, there were always this number of sirens and people weren't just picking them out. But I would say, you know, I'm someone who works from home usually and therefore it's usually very quiet during the daytime and therefore you kind of notice and pick out when there's, you know, noise in the distance. And now it's it seems near constant that you'll hear you know, an ambulance or a fire truck potentially, basically, you know, heading towards one of the hospitals in the area. Yeah. Well, you had quite a funny anecdote about your nearest hospital. What's your nearest hospital called? My nearest hospital is Woodhull. It is about a mile up the road, kind of further towards Williamsburg than where I where I live at the moment. And yeah, it's a, it's a pretty bleak looking building from the outside, like it's brutalist, kind of this concrete tower. And one of my friends who is uh, an EMT, or he used to be an EMT, working as a kind of paramedic in an ambulance, he told me an anecdote where he said that there was a stab, it was either a stabbing or a shooting victim somewhere around this part of Brooklyn. And the guy's last words were, don't take me to Woodhull, because <laughs> he was so afraid of, you know, what the building looked like and how sketchy it seemed. And therefore, in trying to head to a different hospital with a slightly better reputation, he, he, sadly, he sadly passed away. As of last week, as of when I wrote that piece, Woodhull's been at capacity for COVID patients. So they're now in a position where they're using overspill facilities and direct people elsewhere. There's been quite a lot of talk about kind of class divides and how, you know, the poor are suffering more from this, as poor people always tend to suffer more when bad things happen. But is that the case in New York? I mean, Brooklyn is a Brooklyn's very rich area in some parts, but some parts, I think your part is probably less affluent. Is there a big kind of sense of the social divide here that, you know, Manhattan is getting away with it, even if it's not actually true? I think that socially that that, that's, that divide certainly is there, as in you look at the boroughs and the areas which had the biggest outbreaks of cases earliest, and it was the less affluent parts of Brooklyn and Queens out towards the fringes. So for example, my, I've got a friend who lives in Corona, which is an unfortunately named neighbourhood in Queens, close to where, you know, the US Open tennis is played and close to where the, the New York Mets play. There and Jackson Heights and Elmhurst, kind of three fairly close together neighbourhoods with large minority populations, and they've seen the biggest number of cases so far. In Brooklyn, it's, it's you know, a similar, if slightly less extreme picture. The neighbourhoods which are seeing the 
biggest cases are minority areas. And you know, Woodhull's one of maybe three hospitals near me. There's another one in Bushwick, which is also about a mile and a half away, called the Wyckoff Medical Center. There's uh, the Brooklyn Hospital in, in Glinton Hill. And in places like the, the Wyckoff Medical Center, last week there was a story in the New York Post, which is they'd spoken to a doctor who worked there, you know, who's describing, you know, body bags lining the hallways of the, the, the hospital, catastrophic conditions. Those medical professionals are all not just, you know, concerned and horrified at their day-to-day working environment. They're obviously concerned and horrified about potential risk to their, their health as well. Like a, a lot of medical professionals are just resigned to getting the disease at, at this point. I think now it's, it's a position where, you know, New York is is more, it's better using its, the hospitals across the across the, the city. So, you know, when when one hospital in a low-income area fills up, there is overspill into, into the, the richer and more affluent ones. What about these ship hospitals? Have you got a sense of how much they're being used? Has that been so? The ship, the ship hospital that came in, the U.S. Naval Hospital, was only to rehouse patients with other conditions, not coronavirus. So it's basically to clear space in other hospitals, so that if you clear out, if you clear out a standard medical ward, you can then convert it into an intensive care unit. If I'm a New Yorker with a you know a sort of regular ailment, there's a chance yeah. I will go onto a ship. Let's say you you've been recovering from a surgery, for example, and you were you know you had to have round the clock medical assistance, but you it wasn't coronavirus related. Then it's, the the ship was basically there to clear the space in in the existing hospitals for all the huge influx of corona patients. Now, initially, when it when it came, I think there's a, there's a New York Times story which said within the first few days of it being there, there it, it only had twelve patients. I'm not sure I'm not sure about the extent to which that's changed at the moment, but with regard to kind of just like the overall busyness of hospitals you know there's been a fair amount of skepticism from you know parts of the the fringes of of the right about how busy hospitals look from the outside and how busy they are there was a movement i think it was hashtag film your hospital where a load of citizen journalists who usually will you know impart news to their followers sorry i did air quotes which you won't be able to see uh, but, but when they impart when they impart new, you know what they see and perceive and report that as 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 the news, they they'll, they're describing you know hospitals being empty or not looking visibly busy. Obviously, if that's the case, the reason for it is because all of these other hospitals are trying to clear existing day to day hospital activity out to overspill areas to you know for example like that ship. So therefore, if you had an elective surgery booked for this month, that will have been cancelled or postponed, and that and therefore there's this kind of dissonance between how busy a hospital might look and then how busy like the the carnage that's going on inside it you talked a bit about minorities in these very affected areas we've got a piece by heather mcdonald's coming out soon on spec us i don't want to ruin anything but i mean i think it's sort of quite depressing in a way that even you know the politics of coronavirus have become racialized Sure, and I think this has become a, a democratic talking point already, and perhaps it's my sort of unpleasant right wing instincts, but I feel it's it's a slightly false claim that's being made because it just so happens that you know high density urban areas, poor urban areas, have large numbers of blacks. It's not because there is a, a kind of campaign by white doctors not to treat black people. Yeah. I think that's that's pretty much the case. You know, the demographics, there were a lot of alarmist headlines about the demographics of people who are who are coming down with the disease and who are dying of it. 
And as you say, you know, African-Americans had a higher than proportional representation in terms of the, the cases and, and the deaths. So the same with the Jewish community here. Ultimately, that probably has a lot more to do with urbanization and the makeup of a city than it does with, you know, the virus being racist or the virus being anti-Semitic. You know, I live in Bedstuy. It's a mixed or traditionally it's a mixed Orthodox Jewish and, and black area. It's an area where you've got a, a, a very high population density and it's a, an area where within those communities as well, your living situation is is shared. Like, you know, if you're if you're living in a brownstone, you could be sharing that building with 30 people. So it's 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 more just probably got a lot more to do with the sociological circumstances than the refusal of care, I would imagine. The wording of that bill from Warren and Booker and Harris, their bill seemed to infer that if you were a minority patient, you wouldn't get as good treatment. Yes. Didn't uh, they suggest there's implicit biases against minorities receiving treatment, which is quite an extraordinary claim, I think. It is. And I'm not sure where their evidence for that is. You can go into this with like pre-existing biases and then you'll find that the coronavirus confirms them in some way or respect. Like I might go in and say, I think that the American healthcare system is predatory and that hospitals and insurance companies make far too much money out of it. I might go in and think that and I'll be able to find some stat that seems to prove it, but it doesn't actually bear out to be true. Warren and Harrison Booker are going into this wanting to see implicit bias within the hospital system, whereas ultimately I just don't think that that's the way that these crises are shaking out. Like America's hospitals are effectively operating like war zone hospitals. I don't think they've, they don't, probably don't even have the time to be racist. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting that I think it's because the coronavirus story is something that the media and the political class really don't know how to compute because it's so vast and ever-changing. And... Well, what, what are you talking about, Freddie? I'm, I'm uniquely qualified as an armchair epidemiologist. I've got a degree in English and film studies from the University of Exeter, and therefore I'm perfectly qualified to write about a pandemic. You know perfectly well that when we talk about the media at The Spectator, we are not referring to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I think, you know, we do have this problem. You know, we, we the way we process stories is by running them down familiar channels. And one of the familiar channels in the American media and for the American political class is racism and to turn everything into a story about race. And I think it's because, you know, people just can't handle the enormity of the problem. So they have to go down these familiar patterns. So it either becomes a story about civil liberties on the right. It becomes a story about racism on the left. It's also, you know, obviously within the media, there's the enormous ego factor where if you're the biggest journalist, you want to be covering the biggest story. And that doesn't necessarily make you the person who's most qualified to be writing it in front and center of tackling that issue. If you're someone who usually writes about you know, wider political stories, and then all of that stops because of this pandemic, you still want to, you know, be getting your daily dose of, you know, attention on social media, and therefore you're more prepared to tackle that story, rather than potentially yielding it to someone with a bit more scientific background. Well, speaking of sort of silly diversions into in the media, there was an amazing example in the New York Times today, I think it was actually yesterday, it was of a news reporter calling out a Trump attack ad on Joe Biden, I think the 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 phrase they used was falsely suggesting that somebody was Chinese who is actually an American Chinese person, and the the idea behind this was that it was it was a sort of attempt to slur this person as a evil Chinese person when in fact he's a Chinese American. But it's a very odd line of attack because the ad has a sort of it's just a it's a half second flash to a clip of Biden at a 
event in Beijing with Chinese yeah. flags behind him. And the other politician on the stage is a Chinese American. But it's so yeah. odd that that's the kind of thing that people are writing stories about while everything else is going on. I realise the newspapers have got to fill their pages somehow. Everyone's been inside for 27 days and we're all going insane. You know, that's... <laughs> are Americans doing as much, um, you know, house partying, Zooming? Is it as, as prolific on both sides yeah, of the channel? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been having a happy hour with my cousins all across America and in Britain and Ireland as well every Friday at like 5 or 6 p.m. So that's on Zoom. I've been, we've been doing, I've, I've got a regular trivia night quiz with my university friends. That's on, that's on House Party. That's on a Tuesday. Because well, they're British, right? They are British, British, yeah. So it seems to be, it's a bit like WhatsApp. WhatsApp's huge in Britain, but not really as big. I mean, it's pretty big now, but it's not as big in America, is it? It seems like House Party's become the British app. Which is strange, because I'm pretty sure that House Party is an American app. And Zoom is obviously, was founded by a, a Chinese immigrant to America. Oh, yeah. I think they've both got Sequoia Capital behind them. Yeah, which is American, isn't it? What a savvy investment for Peter Thiel. Yeah, he's, he's got a canny knack. <laughs> well, and when you're not video chatting with people, have you been out much at all? I've been quarantining since March 14th, which is 27 days ago, not that I'm counting. In that time, I have left the apartment for three trips to the supermarket five five minutes away. When I've done that, I've been in. The first time I did it, I basically, I think, got it slightly wrong because it was about 73 degrees. And I went out in a full parka and gloves and a face mask. So it was boiling hot. Since then, I, I've been going out in just gloves and then like a, a bandana wrapped around my face. But yeah, I've only done that on three occasions, which is when I ran out of beer. That's it. That's essential. That's that's an essential trip. What, what well, I think so. so. The law here is, you know, all non-essential businesses are prohibited from reporting to work. And then otherwise, if you're if you're an individual, this is the statewide from Cuomo, the statewide mandate is you've been told to limit your outdoor movement to trips to the grocery store, exercise with appropriate social distancing and then other essential trips. And are you struck by how obedient Americans seem to be to these diktats? I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there's been a lot of rowing in Britain about, you know, how, how strict the police are being, whether it's authoritarian, all that sort of stuff. I'm struck that Americans, particularly New Yorkers, actually, they embrace the shutdown mentality quite quickly, I think. Yeah, it's particularly remarkable considering how undeserving of public trust every government organisation, every level of government has been in the lead up to this crisis. They're in a situation in New York where, you know, prior to the outbreak and the lockdown, in early March and late February, you've got city officials telling people to go out and be unafraid to celebrate the Chinese New Year in, in Lower Manhattan, in Chinatown. You have Cuomo being hesitant to even cancel a St. Patrick's Day parade in New York. We were one of the last cities to do that in, in mid-March. And yet, you know, you, you see, you know, th there's that amazing switch that got flipped between public officials not taking this seriously at all. Oh, Bill de Blasio as well, the best one, advising people to stay inside and then still going to the gym the next day anyway. The gym which he goes to, which is, I believe, it's like a 12, 12 to 15 minute driveway from where he actually lives. And yet these are the people who you're supposed to trust and these are the people whose diktats you're obeying. It boggles the mind. De Blasio is not a loved figure in New York, is he, the mayor? But Cuomo, the governor of New York State, is is quite... He's enjoying this great bounce we keep hearing about. He's now talked about as a, as a possible replacement for Biden. It's because his nipples are pissed. So in Brooklyn, we see him as one of our own. His nipples are pissed. Oh, yes. Well, you, you've, you've <laughs> done some excellent research on that for Spectator. 
I mean, I think it's odd that, you know, Cuomo's come out so well from this and de Blasio so badly, because it seems to me they both could be accused of mishandling the crisis. Perhaps de Blasio on a more spectacular scale. Yeah, I think Cuomo's just winning the war of the war of images, right, in terms of represent, representation, because as governor, you know, he's in a position where he's making these 12 p.m. daily broadcasts where he's basically going out, giving information, giving advice and trying to seem fairly normal. Whereas Bill de Blasio, you know, basically, you know, there are lots of reasons to hate both Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio, but the, the reasons to hate de Blasio seem to be a lot fresher in people's minds because, you know, his his national media presence over the, over the last year has been as a failed presidential candidate who probably should never have jumped into the race anyway. Whereas Cuomo's media presence, you know, there was a lot of scrutiny on Cuomo in the run up to the 2018 midterms. You know, he got primaried by, he had a primary challenge rather from the actress Cynthia Nixon, who played Miranda in Sex of the City, who basically ran further to the left of him, was saying that Cuomo wasn't doing enough for New Yorkers, that he was, you know, tied to the corruption issues which they're having up in the State House in Albany, and that he'd completely failed to reform and fix the subway system in New York, which is, you know, a huge issue for the gut, which is the governor's responsibility. At that point, he was incredibly unpopular. And now, but people have forgotten about all of that. And they're, they're, we're now just settled into watching him on, on TV and watching the people who present his footage on TV talk about how austere he seems and how it's so much easier to take him seriously. And then that's being presented in contrast, not just to Trump in, in, in his daily briefings, where you know, he gets asked a lot of stupid questions and therefore gives them the answer that they deserve. But also in contrast to Joe Biden, who when he's when Biden is, you know, now the presumptive Democratic nominee, when he's answering questions, he doesn't seem as with it as you should be as a presidential candidate. Whereas whereas Cuomo is, is at least even though Cuomo's 62, no one's doubting it that he's fully complimentary. Well, I think what Cuomo has been quite canny about is thanking the, the president quite a lot. And I think in a time of crisis, Americans want cooperation between the parties in in for the national interest, right? And I think, I think Cuomo's yeah, that's true. every conference he says, you know, government has been federal government's been very helpful, very cooperative on this. I spoke to the president yesterday; he was very quick in responding, and it's quite a clever kind of move because that's exactly and and maybe even a necessary move, but that's exactly what people want to hear, and I suspect that's why his popularity is rocketing because it's. They're not playing politics as usual. They don't seem to be. Yeah, I mean, you can say what you like about Trump and people do. But three years into his presidency, as a, as a politician who has to kind of interface with him, you can work out how to get the most out of him. And I think that's what Cuomo is doing quite well. It's also what Jay Inslee in Washington has done quite well in terms of, yeah, you're quite right. People want to see cooperation and it, when the federal government's in a position to disperse funds. And you have, you know, Trump, who is obviously fairly egotistical in the White House, playing to his ego is obviously the is obviously the right play to do for the for the people who live in your state. You can say it's a character flaw of Trump and one that's easy to take advantage of, but for the governors themselves, it seems like it's the right uh, course of action. Well, Matt, I think we'll leave it there, but um, stay safe, and I hope the sirens don't keep you up at night. I'll try and put my earplugs in, and also I've got my happy hour later, so I'm sure that'll help me get to sleep too. All right, all the best. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.